welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for July 2014. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go back through the critical care literature for the last month and talk about what caught our eye. So let's start with the effect of erythropoietin and transfusion threshold on neurological recovery after traumatic brain injury, a randomized controlled trial published in JAMA. So the rationale behind EPO trials in TBI is that anemia is common in TBI and may contribute to secondary brain injury. Administration of EPO or transfusion of red cells can be used to treat anemia and there is suggestion from experimental models and smaller trials of a beneficial neuroprotective effect of EPO in TBI. And this is through anti-inflammatory and anti-apoptotic and vascular neuroprotective effects. Now the opposite may be true for red cell transfusion with possible harm, and that provides the rationale for this study. So this prospective multi-centre 200 patient RCT tested two hypotheses using a 2 by 2 factorial design in patients with closed head injury who are unable to follow commands after resuscitation within six hours of injury. So they compared one, EPO1, which was 500 international units per kilo IV versus placebo, then weekly EPO 500 units per kilo for two weeks while in ICU, and if the haemoglobin was less than 12. Now in 2009, this was changed to the EPO2 regime, which was only a single dose of EPO within six hours, not the regular weekly dose after that. And that was in response to the EPO stroke trial, where patients with a regimen similar to EPO1 had a high mortality. So in the end, 74 patients received EPO1, 500 units per kilo IV plus a weekly dose, and 126 patients received EPO2, 500 units per kilo IV as a bolus, and no further doses. So that's a bit of a problem. Now that second arm was the haemoglobin transfusion thresholds, and that was 7 versus 10 grams per deciliter. They report that the groups were similar at baseline, except there was more pre-hospital hypoxia in the placebo group. There was no significant interaction between the haemoglobin transfusion thresholds and EPO for any outcome. Everyone received their EPO as intended, and CSF levels were significantly higher in the treatment group by 12 hours, and remained elevated through to 96 hours. That is, the treatment was effectively administered. Adherence to transfusion thresholds was good. The number of units given for active bleeding was similar, with a difference in units given in stable patients. There was no difference in the EPO primary outcome of favourable neurological outcome at six months. So EPO1 regime was 48.6%, EPO2 regime was 29.8%, placebo was 38.2%. Now we'll come back to that because that wasn't statistically significant, but 48.6% for EPO1 is certainly a trend towards a favourable outcome. 
Now these outcomes were assessed by a structured interview using the Glasgow Outcome Scale and they were dichotomised into favourable, which was good or moderate disability, versus unfavourable, severe disability, vegetative state or death. Covariate analysis with logistic regression showed no significant effect of EPO in any model. Similarly, there was no difference in the transfusion threshold primary favourable neurological outcome at six months, which was 42.5% versus 33% for 10 grams per deciliter. There was no difference in EPO or transfusion threshold groups for safety outcomes of mortality, ARDS or infections, and there was an increase in thromboembolic events overall observed in the 10 gram per deciliter transfusion group, and that was 21.8% versus 8% in the 7 gram per deciliter. Odds ratio was 0.32, 95% confidence intervals, 0.12 to 0.79, p-value 0.009. In summary, this EPO and transfusion threshold in TBI trial tells us that a higher transfusion threshold, that is 10 versus 7 grams per deciliter, is not of benefit and may cause harm due to an increased risk of thromboembolic events. Secondly, it tells us that the administration of EPO was not of benefit. Unfortunately, the change in EPO dose regime is a major limitation, particularly because the EPO1 regime showed promise in terms of neurological outcome compared to EPO2 or placebo, but because of the change in regime, there were insufficient numbers to assess this on its own. Still an important trial. Okay, next in critical care medicine, we have a prospective study on the clinical course and outcomes in transfusion-related acute lung injury. So this prospective observational study outlines the clinical course and outcomes associated with trialy. Now that's something we all recognize and have seen. But what this offers is a good description of the signature of Trialy. So they compared 89 patients with Trialy who had a new acute lung injury that developed during or within six hours of transfusion and had no temporal relationship to an alternative risk factor with possible Trialy. That was 145 patients with new acute lung injury that developed during or within six hours of transfusion, but maybe there was another risk factor and a control group of 164 patients who had a transfusion and didn't develop acute lung injury. And they found that Trialy was associated with lower blood pressure, higher heart rate, fever, decrease in CVP, and an increased duration of vasopressor support. Also, a worse PF ratio, increased respiratory rate, and an increased requirement for mechanical ventilation. There was an increase in neutrophils, a greater decrement of platelet count, and increase in interleukin 8 and 10 associated with Trialy. Also, increase in ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay, ICU and hospital mortality. The risk factors for a decreased duration of mechanical ventilation and ICU and hospital length of stay in the Trialy group included liver surgery, which is who would have expected that, and a higher fluid balance before transfusion. So if you had more fluid before transfusion, you had a shorter morbidity associated with Trialy. 
So in summary, Trali results in a signature of SERS-like response with increased neutrophils, decreased platelets, inflammatory cytokines, and is associated with a longer duration of vasopressors, mechanical ventilation, ICU and hospital length of stay. That's not surprising, but it's good to see it described. Moving on to something a little different, in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, there is a paper, RSV virus increases the virulence of strep pneumoniae by binding to penicillin binding protein 1A. So this article starts with a bit of a hook. RSV and pneumococcus are big hitters on the world stage of respiratory pathogens, and they cause morbidity and mortality, especially in children. And it looks like they're working together. So there is background evidence that seasonal increases in RSV in children are associated with subsequent hospitalization with pneumococcus. And this article presents a new paradigm demonstrating that RSV-infected human airway cilia interact with pneumococcus differently. And this results in more pneumococcal adherence, clumping, ciliary dyskinesia and impaired mucus clearance an increased secretion of inflammatory cytokines, including chemokines that attract neutrophils, a six-fold increase in expression of the gene for pneumococcal toxin, pneumolysin, RSV virion surface G protein, which is one of the three RSV surface protein, acts as a receptor for pneumococcus on infected cells and facilitates bacterial invasion and an increased expression of pneumolysin. And finally, all mice exposed to pneumococcus that was pre-incubated with RSV developed disease within 6 hours and reached the disease endpoint by 12 hours, compared to mice exposed to a similar dose of pneumococcus that is not pre-incubated with RSV, in whom all mice survived disease-free by day 7. So in summary, RSV interacts directly to increase the virulence of pneumococcus. And this study describes the molecular mechanism, the role of surface proteins, and the reliance on pneumolysis toxin. So an interesting development. Going back to JAMA, we have a study, time elapsed after ischemic stroke and risk of adverse cardiovascular events and mortality following elective non-cardiac surgery. So this Danish nationwide observational database study spanning six years aims to address the lack of evidence concerning timing of elective surgery after ischemic stroke. That is, is there an optimal time following a stroke where the risks of further complications are reduced? Is there a best time to have surgery? So they identified 7,137 patients who underwent surgery with a history of prior stroke with 474,046 patients having surgery with no stroke. Not surprisingly, these are very different groups at baseline, and the unadjusted risk of a post-operative major cardiovascular event, which they call MACE, at 30 days was higher in the stroke group with an incident rate of 54.4 compared to the non-stroke group where the rate was 4.1. And similarly, the unadjusted 30-day mortality was higher. However, after logistic regression and propensity matching, any prior stroke increases the risk of major complications following surgery. 
However, with regards to the relationship between timing and the risk of complications following surgery, there was a stepwise decline. So the risk of MACE and mortality in the subgroup with surgery within three months after a stroke was higher with an odds ratio of 4.23 compared to the subgroup that had surgery greater than 12 months after a stroke had an odds ratio of 2.47. So this was driven by the risk of recurrent stroke with an adjusted odds ratio of recurrent stroke 70 times greater in the less than three months after surgery group compared to the greater than 12 months after surgery group. That is, if you have surgery less than three months after a stroke compared to greater than 12 months after a stroke, you have a 70-fold greater increase of a recurrent stroke. The cubic regression splines, which is dose response splines adjusted for sex, age and surgical category, among patients with prior stroke, found that the odds ratio levelled off around nine months for MACE mortality and ischemic stroke. And secondary analysis of the prior stroke cohort revealed an increased risk of 30-day MACE in patients without AF and without statins. So overall, just generally looking at this trial, it seems to suggest that if you have an ischemic stroke, you should wait around nine months before you have non-cardiac surgery to reduce your risk of stroke or major adverse event. Interesting stuff. Okay, moving back to the crystalloid-colloid debate, which will never end, we suspect. So in critical care medicine, we have a paper, Association Between the Choice of IV Crystalloid and In-Hospital Mortality Among Critically Ill Adults with Sepsis. So the balanced versus non-balanced fluid and critical illness debate has been grumbling along since, well, perhaps 1883, when Hamburger test isotonic saline. This large multi-centre, this is 360 US hospitals, retrospective, observational study investigates the extent to which the choice of IV crystalloid can influence in-hospital mortality in 53,448 critically ill septic adults. They used propensity score matching to adjust for confounders and created two groups, those that received balanced fluids, of which there are 3,400, and they had varying amounts of balanced fluids, that is, uh, lactated ringers and some non-balanced fluids, and this was expressed as a proportion of balanced versus total and a dose-response relationship was later tested in this group. So this balanced group were compared to the non-balanced group of which there were about 3,400 and they exclusively received fluid with a strong iron difference of zero, that is isotonic saline or 5% dextrose. They report there was an absolute in-hospital mortality beyond day two of 19.6% in the balance group versus 22.8% in the non-balance group, which is a risk ratio of 0.86 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.78 to 0.94. There were no clinically significant differences in rates of acute renal failure or ICU length of stay. And the dose-response analysis revealed in-hospital mortality was 3.4% lower 
per 10% increase in proportion of balanced fluid received, with mortality differences most significant at the lowest and the highest quintiles. So this study suggests that the use of balanced fluids for initial resuscitation in severe sepsis is associated with a lower risk of mortality with a dose-response relationship and the effect was independent of volume administered. But of course, a retrospective observational electronic database linkage study where many patients were not in ICU by day two and almost half the sample were excluded due to missing fluid data is limited to hypothesis generating status. It does highlight the need for large RCTs investigating the balanced versus non-balanced solutions with or without colloid supplement. The next fluid study in intensive care medicine is long-term outcomes in patients with severe sepsis randomized to resuscitation with hydroxyethylstarch 130.42 or ringers. So we're all aware of the HESS starch evidence to date, including increased 90-day mortality in septic shock in RCTs, impaired renal function, increased need for renal replacement therapy, coagulation dysfunction, hepatic dysfunction, and itch in critically ill patients. This protocolized long-term follow-up of the Scandinavia starch for severe sepsis septic shock or the 6S trial which was HESS versus RINGIS in severe sepsis reports six-month mortality was 53.3% in the HESS group and 47.5% in the RINGIS group. Now that's a relative risk of 1.12 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.98 to 1.29. The one-year mortality was similar, that is 56% in the HESS group and 51.5% in the RINGERS group, not significant. Adjusting for potential risk factors at baseline did not alter this and there was no difference in days alive and days out of hospital in the first year. So what does that mean? Well, the original 6S trial reported an increase in 90-day mortality and while these long-term outcome figures show no difference, does it change anything? Because remember, the 7,000 patient chest trial reported no difference in 90-day mortality, so perhaps it's not surprising that 6S doesn't. There was a trend towards increased mortality with HESS, and the authors state they could not reject a 24% relative increase or a 4% relative decrease in mortality at one year with HESS within 95% confidence intervals. So overall, HESS might have harmful early side effects, that might not persist long term, but at no stage is HESS superior and the CHESS trial results still stand. Dysglycemia in the critically ill and the interaction of chronic and acute glycemia with mortality. This prospective observational study, published in Intensive Care Medicine, explores the effect of acute and chronic glycemic control on outcomes in critical illness. That is, should the target glycemic range be individualized based on prior glycemic control? So they classified a thousand patients as CIAH, which is critical illness associated hyperglycemia, and that was about half of the patients, recognized diabetes, 22%, unrecognized diabetes, 5.5%, and normoglycemia, 23%. percent 
they then explored the association with outcomes and they report that both recognized and unrecognized diabetics were associated with a greater peak glucose concentration and were sicker, older and heavier. So that's not surprising. We expect diabetics to be sicker and have more comorbidity. There was a significant relationship between mortality, acute glycemia and HbA1c. So the risk of death increased by about 20% for each increase in blood glucose level of 1 millimole per litre in the CIAH group and known diabetics with good prior glucose control, which is an HbA1c of less than 7. However, the risk of death did not increase with increasing blood glucose levels in patients with diabetes and poor pre-ICU glycemic control. Patients with insufficiently controlled diabetes were compared to those with sufficiently controlled diabetes. They were well matched at baseline and despite the poor control group having higher peak blood glucose levels, there was no difference in outcome between the two groups. So what does that mean? Well, I think what we can take from this is that CIAH or critical illness associated hyperglycemia is the most common cause of increased blood glucose levels in ICU. That is, they don't have diabetes or pre-existing poor glucose control. Acute hyperglycemia is associated with mortality in non-diabetic patients and in diabetic patients with good pre-ICU glycemic control. Therefore, marked hyperglycemia should probably still be considered as harmful in that group. Acute hyperglycemia is not associated with mortality in patients with poor pre-ICU control. And this is a group that probably requires further observation. That is, diabetics or unknown diabetics with poor pre-ICU glycemic control may be better served with higher glycemic targets, a bit like what we see in blood pressure. So that's an interesting area for future study. Back to critical care medicine, chlorhexidine impregnated dressing for prevention of catheter-related bloodstream infection, a meta-analysis. So this meta-analysis identifies nine RCTs where the use of a chlorhexidine impregnated dressing was compared to conventional dressings to prevent CLABSI. The result was chlorhexidine dressings were associated with a reduced prevalence of CLABSI with a relative risk of 0.6 and 95% confidence intervals of 0.41 to 0.88. They were also associated with a reduced prevalence of catheter colonization, a relative risk of 0.52. This effect was stronger in the adult population where the relative risk was 0.45 for CLABSI compared to the pediatric population where the relative risk was 1.21. Overall, the relative risk reduction for CLABSI was 45% with an absolute risk reduction of 1.3% and a number needed to treat of 77. The authors note that this effect is seen in short-term catheters where the extraluminal route of infection is dominant compared to longer-term catheters, which they defined as greater than one to two weeks, where the intraluminal route predominates. So a pretty good argument for chlorhexidine impregnated dressings. Let's move to pediatric critical care. So in the New England Journal of Medicine, the TOBI study group have 
published Effects of Hypothermia for Perinatal Asphyxia on Childhood Outcomes. So this follow-up of the original TOBI trial, which stands for Total Body Hypothermia for Neonatal Encephalopathy, describes the longer-term, six to seven years, outcomes of 325 newborns with asphyxial encephalopathy born at 36 weeks gestational age or greater, who were randomised to standard care alone, which was the control group, or standard care with hypothermia to a rectal temperature of 33 to 34 degrees Celsius for 72 hours within six hours after birth. They report similar parental and baseline demographics between the groups, and 88% came from the UK, survival with an IQ greater than or equal to 85 of 52% in the hypothermia group versus 39% in the standard group, and that's a relative risk of 1.31, p-value of 0.04. Similar mortality, 29% in hypothermia versus 30% in control, and a significant reduction in cerebral palsy in survivors from the hypothermia group, 21%, compared to the control group, 36%. There was also a significant reduction in moderate or severe disability in the hypothermia group, 22% versus control, 36%, and greater survival without neurological abnormality in hypothermia, 45%, compared to control, 28%. And that's a relative risk of 1.6, 95% confidence intervals of 1.15 to 2.22. So overall, this remarkable study shows the benefits of moderate hypothermia after perinatal asphyxia persist into middle childhood. The next paediatric study in critical care medicine is sedation, sleep, promotion and delirium screening practices in the care of mechanically ventilated children, a wake-up call for the paediatric critical care community. In recent months, we have seen studies describing practice variation in paediatric ICUs, including thromboprophylaxis, that was the protract study, and tracheostomy practice. This international online survey of sedation, sleep, delirium screening practices in PICUs with respondents, of which there were 341, predominantly from North America, about 70%, describes significant variation in practice. This includes that sedation protocols are present in only 27% of PICUs, that although sedation scoring systems are present in 70% of these units, they're only used regularly in 42% and they're never used in 11%. 72% use opioids and benzos as their initial sedative. 62% of North American PICUs are private rooms, but only 11% in other countries are. In only 16% of PICUs are there protocols to optimise noise and 9% to optimise light and 71% of PICUs who responded don't perform delirium screening. The authors summarise that despite almost universal application of pharmacological sedation in PICUs, only a minority have programmes to assess the effects of this sedation, delirium and sleep. And they say there is another opportunity here for future study. So this series of studies looking at practice variation, 
present a really interesting opportunity for future research in paediatric ICU. Okay, back to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. We have oxygenation response to positive end expiratory pressure predicts mortality in ARDS, a secondary analysis of the LOVES and EXPRESS trials. So best PEEP in ARDS remains an elusive goal with varying outcomes from ARDS trials. This secondary analysis explores the possibility that the oxygenation response to PEEP may predict outcome, that is, patients that respond to PEEP may do better. So analysis of all 983 LOVES patients in whom there was a mortality of 38% revealed PEEP was increased post-randomization in 47% of patients, decrease in 30% and unchanged in 23%. An increase in PF ratio of 25 millimeters of mercury after an increase in PEEP was strongly associated with a lower mortality with an odds ratio of 0.8. A PF increase of less than 25 millimeters of mercury after PEEP increase was associated with a mortality of 54% versus an increase of greater than 25 millimeters of mercury, 31%. So this association was stronger in patients with more severe ARDS compared to less severe ARDS, and the same relationship was observed in the express cohort and multivariate analysis of the combined cohort of which there were 1,723 patients revealed the oxygenation response after PEEP modification was associated with mortality only in the subgroup of patients with more severe ARDS who were subjected to an increase in PEEP. So this is the first time an association between change in oxygenation and PEEP increase on mortality has been demonstrated. The authors present a causal hypothesis, that is, that the oxygenation response to PEEP might predict whether patients will accrue a mortality benefit from increased PEEP, potentially mediated through lung recruitment and protection against repeated opening and closure of small airways and alveoli, whereas patients with less recruitable lung may fail to benefit and may even accrue harm from overdistension. They also present a prognostic hypothesis, that is, patients with ARDS who exhibit a positive oxygenation response to PEEP may simply have a better overall prognosis than patients who fail to respond to PEEP, irrespective of how their PEEP is ultimately managed. They call, unsurprisingly, for an RCT randomizing patients with a positive oxygen response to PEEP to high versus lower PEEP to further elucidate this. Finally, let's look long term. In American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, we have increased one-year healthcare use in survivors of severe sepsis. Are survivors of severe sepsis a hidden healthcare disaster? This observational cohort study compares sepsis survivors with their own baseline pre-sepsis data and with matched non-sepsis hospital survivors. The cohort are participants in the Health and Retirement Study, a cohort of older Americans, 30,000, of which 16,772 have Medicare linkages who are interviewed every two years. 
They report that 7,856 had baseline cognitive and functional assessments, of which 1,083 survived a severe sepsis hospitalisation. So these were then matched to 1,083 non-sepsis hospital survivors. The cohorts were older and had mild to moderate baseline functional limitations, a median hospital length of stay of 8 days, and 38.8% were admitted to ICU. The severe sepsis cohort had a 90-day mortality of 27.5% and a one-year mortality of 44.2% compared to the non-sepsis cohort, which was 15.5% and 31.4%, so quite a bit lower. 48.2% of the severe sepsis cohort who died did so at home. 33.8% in hospital and 18% in long-term care. And that was the same as the non-sepsis cohort. The sepsis survivors required substantial health care resources in the year after hospitalisation, with a median of 16 days in hospital, with 26.5% readmitted with 30 days, 41% within 90 days. And they spent a median of 9 days admitted to hospital, in the 90 days after discharge, to compared to a median of zero days for non-sepsis survivors. And when compared to the year before their pre-sepsis baseline, the survivors spend more days in hospital, 16 verse 7. So overall, this tells us that severe sepsis survivors required substantial healthcare support in the year after hospital discharge compared to their own baseline or non-sepsis match survivors. And this was particularly in the first 90 days after their sepsis. Now it does not tell us what the cause of morbidity and mortality is, simply that it exists. So it's an area for further study. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club July 2014. Come to the website and have a look at the articles or read them yourself online. Otherwise, I'll see you next month. Thank you.